All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series produced in cooperation with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Number 759, Ernest Miranda, Petitioner versus Arizona. We'll hear arguments in number 18, Roe against Wade. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of 310 million different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Good evening and welcome to C-SPAN and the National Constitution Center's Landmark Cases series. Tonight, case number 11 out of 12. And this is a 1966 case, Miranda versus Arizona, that helped to revolutionize policing in America. You're under arrest. You have the right to an attorney. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say to us can be used against you in a court of law. Do you even know the Miranda rights? Yes. What's your name then? <laughs> we, we, you got a lot of stuff to do. Oh, go ahead. Got a lot of... <laughs> Are you sure you understand your rights? Oh, yes, yes. He explained them to me, just like they do on television. Done nothing wrong. Right to remain silent. I bought him. Talk to my lawyer. You have the right to an attorney. Anything you say may be used against you. Sergeant Hoffman. You have the right to remain silent. If you have the right to remain silent, anything you say can or will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to speak with an attorney as you can see, Miranda rights became part of our national culture. We're going to learn the story of them tonight from our two guests. Let me introduce them to you. Jeffrey Rosen returns to the table tonight, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. And for you regular viewers, you know they are our partners in this series. He is a Supreme Court expert, author of numerous books on the court, including the Supreme Court, the personalities and rivalries that defined America. Thanks for being back. So great to be back. Paul Cassell is with us for the first time in our series. Glad to have you. Former federal judge for the District of Utah from 2002 to 2007. Also served as U.S. Associate Deputy Attorney General from 86 to 88. And now he's a professor of criminal law and procedure at the University of Utah Law School. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So what are the constitutional issues in the Miranda case? Well, Miranda settles or at least tries to settle a question that's been around the country for several hundred years now. The question is, how much pressure can police officers put on a suspect when they're trying to get information from that suspect? And what sorts of rules are going to regulate whether confessions can be used in court? As we've talked about in this series, so many of the amendments to the Constitution concerned criminal rights, rights of prosecution. Like, What is it about this case that made it landmark? Well, as your opening clip shows, it's transformed the culture. Look at all those TV shows that gave the Miranda rights. I was trying before the show to see if I could do it by heart. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to consult with an attorney. If you're indigent, one will be appointed for you. That is so central. How did I do? That was you good. <laughs> but I mean, it's just so central to the culture that um, when Chief Justice Rehnquist reaffirmed Miranda, he said, as you did in your opening, the case has come to be accepted by the culture. How many cases can we say about that? Before we get into the story of Ernesto Miranda, how about a general discussion about 
1940s, 50s, and early 60s policing in this country. Uh, we were talking beforehand that we're currently in a big debate in this country about policing tactics, and one really evolved in the 60s. Why is that? Well, I think what happened in the country is we saw already significant improvement in police force, uh, in police uh, policing in this country. In the 1930s, the third degree putting pressure, threats to try to get confessions was a fairly widespread tactic. But then as you move forward in the 40s and the 50s and certainly in the 60s, I think those tactics had started to essentially disappear. But then the question was, all right, if pressure isn't going to be used in the form of physical threats to get confessions, police officers are going to use psychological tactics, psychological techniques to get confessions. And what kind of regulation should there be on those techniques? That was the issue that Miranda had to wrestle with. So, Jeff Rosen, when you're looking at the country during that period of time, was it, were there any uh, regional aspects to this? Were there uh, cases after Jim Crow where perhaps blacks in the South might have had more problems with prosecutions than other areas of the country, or was this uniform? There's a huge debate about police brutality, and it focuses on the South. So, as Paul said, in the, in the 1930s, the court had a broad standard that confessions had to be voluntary. You couldn't use the third degree and literally beat a confession out of people. But it's 1961, and the uh, Civil Rights Commission issues a report finding widespread police brutality in the South, so there's still a debate about how much that's going on. And in, in the face of this, there's a criminal procedure revolution in the Warren Court. The Warren Court issues the MAP decision in 1961, basically applying the exclusionary rule to the states. 1963, it says that you have to have a lawyer present during police interrogation, and the Gideon case says that uh, you have to have a court-appointed lawyer. So basically, the Supreme Court, led by Earl Warren, is using the Constitution, the Fourth and Fifth Amendment, to address what it perceives to be a real problem with police brutality in the South, and that is the background against which this case is decided. So we will spend more time on the Warren Court, its makeup, and why they took this case on, but let's tell Ernesto Miranda's story. Uh, who is he? Well, I think also you've got to look not just at, at Miranda, at, but as well at his victim. And we can talk a little bit about her shortly. But Miranda was a, a repeat criminal, somebody who had been arrested, uh, convicted, sentenced a number of times. He was, I think it's fair to say, a drifter who had really didn't have any uh, established employment or any place to work. And, and then uh, on the night uh, in question, uh, he at knife point abducted a young woman and raped her. So that's the sort of backdrop that's here. Jeff's talking about, of course, the the Warren Court Revolution. I mean, I think the other thing that's going on simultaneously with Miranda committing this violent crime is violent crime is skyrocketing in America in the 1960s. And whether it's the Warren Court or something else or a little bit of both that's responsible for that, that, of course, is part of the backdrop, too. So the date in question, March 2nd, 1963, the woman's name was Patricia, 18 years old, leaving work at the Paramount Movie Theater in Phoenix, Arizona. And on the way home, she was kidnapped, raped, robbed and then driven back to her house. We've got a series of accusations of very, very serious crimes. Uh, how did this then proceed from here? So the following week, uh, there's another robbery, and uh, some witnesses see a car that uh, seems to belong to Miranda at a bus stop. Uh, the police check out the car. They go to Miranda's, so the place where he's living, talk to his girlfriend, and she essentially uh, fingers him. He's uh, accused. He's taken down to the station. There's a dispute about whether or not he's actually told his rights. Some states did it, others didn't. The FBI did read rights at the time. But um, essentially, he signs a confession saying, I did it. 
and uh, he's uh, convicted. And then he claims that, in fact, he was never read his rights, and that's when the case began. So we visited the Phoenix Police Department, and uh, what makes this really interesting is that the detective who arrested Ernesto Miranda is still uh, very much with us, still with the Phoenix Police Department, and he gave us a tour uh, because this is very much part of the police department's and national history, and they've got a display there. He tells us the story from the Phoenix Police Department's point of view. Let's watch. When she first looked at the lineup, she said it looks like the number one guy. The number one guy was Ernie Miranda. And I asked her, are you sure? And she says, well, it looks like him, but maybe if I heard his voice, I might be able to make a positive. I didn't say anything when we went back into the room. I waited for a while. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to say. And Ernie asked me, how did I do? And I said, well, you didn't do so good, Ernie. He said, well, I guess I better tell you about it then. I said, that would be a good idea. And he did. He told us about the kidnapping, rape, and robbery. After he told us, I said, would you sign a written confession, which says at the beginning of the report, of the form, I give this statement voluntarily without coercion or threats or promises of immunity, knowing my legal rights. Then he wrote the, the statement all on one short page. The writing was excellent and the spelling was excellent and the description of the act was accurate. This is the entrance into the old city jail on the fifth floor of the old city county courthouse and building. Miranda would have been brought in here and he would have been processed just like every other prisoner. He would have been searched and then he would have been transported or taken over, shown his new quarters, which is over here. We have four identical tanks. This particular tank here would have been where Miranda was kept and it would have been what we call the felony tank. So he would have been booked into here. Ernie would have spent maybe a week. It may have been only a couple of days. So that is retired Detective Carol Cooley from the Phoenix Police Department. You teach procedure, so we saw the signed confession. What is it about that that right off the bat led the the system to get interested in this prosecution? Well, it's almost the perfect test case because this isn't a case where someone was beaten to get a confession. Instead, the police came in and, and they used some tricks. They said, look, she's identified you as the one who raped her. You might as well tell us what happened. And so it presents the issue of was psychological pressure brought to bear in a way that meant that the confession shouldn't be used. And of course, one of the other interesting things that we'll see as the program unfolds tonight is Miranda ends up radically changing the rules. In 1963, when this uh, interrogation took place, there wasn't a single precedent in America that would support throwing that kind of a confession out. For 170 years, those kinds of statements had been routinely admitted in court, and I think that's uh, when Chief Justice Warren and others started to get interested in this issue. Miranda had two trials, one the robbery trial of Barbara, the other the rape trial of Patricia Patricia in June 1963. What happened to him? Well, uh, he was challenged on Sixth Amendment grounds because uh, the court had said that uh, you have a right to counsel during interrogation. And uh, the... um, uh, well, lower... first step, he was convicted on both of those, right? He, he wasn't. So, yeah, so he was convicted uh, and sentenced to two, 20 to 25 years on 
the robbery and also in the kidnapping, rape, and, and was uh, scheduled to serve them all concurrently in June of 63. So then we go to the challenge. Uh, we go to the challenge, and the appellate court, uh, it's the Arizona Supreme Court, the constitutional issue is the Sixth Amendment, and the court summarily rejects the claim that the confession was improperly uh, put in evidence. The detectives testified they informed him of his legal rights, and the only question was whether a voluntary uh, violation of the Sixth Amendment. The court says we hold a confession may be admissible when made without an attorney if it's voluntary and does not violate the constitutional rights of the defendant. All right, so the Sixth Amendment says what? So the Sixth Amendment says that you have the right to effective assistance of counsel. And the argument that Miranda's lawyers are making is, look, when he's talking to Detective Cooley, who we saw just a moment ago, he didn't have a lawyer then, and he should have had a lawyer at that point. The problem with that argument is that for 170 years in American history, the rule has always been you get a lawyer once you go to court, once charges have formally been filed. So historically, the Sixth Amendment wouldn't have been in play, and, and neither would the Fifth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment says you have the right not to be compelled to be a witness against you, and witnessing has always occurred in court. So under the, the precedents that existed, this isn't a problem at all to use the confession of Ernesto Miranda, and that's why the lawyers are looking for creative theories to try to present to the Supreme Court. For the non-lawyers in our audience, we keep trying to explain how the process works. So he didn't uh, have his appeal uh, upheld in our, the Arizona S uh, Supreme Court. So how does it make its way from there to the, the, the federal Supreme Court? You have to file a petition for what's called certiorari. The Supreme Court has to agree to take the case. Just a few years earlier, in a very dramatic related case called uh, the Gideon case, immortalized by Anthony Lewis's wonderful book, Gideon's Trumpet, which everyone should read if they haven't read it yet, uh, Gideon, the defendant, actually hand-wrote a petition saying, I was wrongly convicted because I didn't have... Uh, a lawyer for my defense and the court uh, overturning the previous rule said that you uh, are intent, uh, entitled to court-appointed counsel. Uh, so here the ACLU got interested and they brought in a lawyer called John Frank, who is an Arizona lawyer, clerk for Justice Black, wrote a biography of him and was a Yale law professor. Uh, so a very distinguished constitutional scholar. And John Frank decided to bring in local counsel, a guy called John Flynn, who he thought could argue it very well. And once you get the big guns uh, like that going, then the Supreme Court gets interested. And a note about John Frank, because he ended up not arguing the case. But John Frank be, be, uh, popped up later in the national uh, scene because he served at counsel for Anita Hill in the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings. Yes, right. very did. distinguished yeah. lawyer. And yeah. uh, Miranda goes from uh, someone who's in the bowels of the uh, interrogation room in Maricopa County to someone who's got one of the most high-powered uh, legal teams imaginable in the Supreme Court. Uh, here is a comment from Warbo. Warbo's been watching us throughout the series and been active on Twitter, and he writes, Miranda was a rapist, a kidnapper, an armed robber, landmark cases. It's the defense of bad people that upholds liberty for us all. Comments about that? Well, I, I, the question, of course, is what kind of liberty should we uphold? For 170 years in this country, there had never been a rule that the statement of the type that Miranda was making would not be admissible in court. In fact, if you go around the world today, it's very hard to find a country that would exclude the kind of statement that Miranda gave. And so certainly there's no debate that it's important to protect the liberty of all persons, even those who are accused of crimes. The, the problem with Miranda is, frankly, it just goes so far. The pendulum swings so far in the direction of protecting suspects' interests that people like Patricia, the, the woman who was raped, uh, are given uh, short shrift in the decision. I, I, sh I should... Uh note that in the decision itself, Chief Justice Warren disagrees, 
And he said that at the time, the FBI was routinely giving warnings like this. And then he quotes the experience of other countries and said that England, since the turn of the century, had been giving similar warnings. So we can certainly, uh, we're going to have a good discussion about how rooted it was in the Fifth and Sixth Amendments. We have to talk about the history of the Fifth Amendment, too. But it's not true that Warren was completely making this up out of of thin air. Well, certainly with respect to warnings, it's true that the FBI was giving warnings before. The problem with Miranda isn't reading a few words off a card. You have the right to remain silent. That's what you see on the TV programs. The problem with Miranda is what I would call the exclusionary rule aspects of it. It sets up rules that say you can't question certain people or if you... If you uh, do certain things, evidence can't be used. It's all of the procedural apparatus that's associated with Miranda that, frankly, even today means tens of thousands of criminal cases are going unsolved every year because of these procedural requirements. So let's get back to that later on when we talk about the consequences of this and the other decisions from the Warren Court. But first, I want to talk about the Warren Court. Now, the last case that we did in this series was 1962, and there are a couple of new justices who have been appointed to the court since then. Abe Fortas, uh, LBJ appointee, Byron Wright was a Kennedy appointee. How does the dynamic of the court change, Jeff Rosen, with these new additions? Well, uh, Fortas, first of all, had literally been appointed by the Warren Court to represent uh, Gideon. So he's acutely interested in criminal procedure. He's an LBJ supporter. He, he got into trouble when LBJ nominated him to be chief justice for uh, both advising LBJ on the side and for some other matters. But, but he's someone who's very committed to the Warren Court's procedural revolution. Byron White, uh, not so much. He was a Kennedy's only appointee, a Rhodes Scholar, champion football player, very deferential to Congress, very pro-law enforcement, and uh, is in dissent in uh, Miranda. So uh, there there was a a balance on both sides. But essentially, the most striking thing about the Warren Court that's deciding Miranda, look at all the former judges and politicians on this court. Hugo Black, former police court judge in Alabama, he saw the third degree firsthand. There's an amazing, you know, there's another great biography. There's so many that our watchers or viewers have to see. But um, the great biography uh, of Hugo Black which describes how, um, as a lawyer, he um, is trying a Hispanic defendant. And he brings the defendant up and he closes the shade so the defendant looks kind of menacing. And he doesn't say anything. He says, I just wanted the jury to take a look at that man. And later he regrets that kind of behavior. And as a police court judge, he thought that he saw how the system can really be abused and the third degree is used. Tom Clark, uh, 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 former uh, a politician as well. Uh, just all of these, and, and most important, of course, we've got to talk about Earl Warren, who is the district attorney of Almeda County. He actually prosecuted these people. He's acutely sensitive in a previous case called Spano, which we can talk about, about how um, defendants can be sentenced for a huge amount of time because of procedural factors beyond their control. So these are not ivory tower judges. They are practical politicians, and they really know how the system works. So I want to talk a little bit yeah. more about Earl Warren's biography because Jeff Rosen mentioned uh, the fact that he was a prosecutor. Right. He was also the attorney general of the state of California. Then he served three terms as governor. But there's yeah. an interesting biographical note. His own father was murdered in a robbery. So put, put all of that into context about the, uh, the views that he brings to the court. Right. Well, I, I think uh, Jeff hit it on the head. I think uh, there are a large number of politicians on the Supreme Court at this period of time. And Frankly, uh, I think in my view and and lots of others, 
they had not successfully made that transition from politicians who get to have their own views, impose those own views, impose those views, uh, pass legislation, and they had now shifted into a judicial role where their duty is simply to interpret the law, not to make the law. And so when they see a problem like police interrogation, politicians, of course, can pass laws, pass regulations, do different things. And I think at least five justices on the court were ready to do the same thing uh, through, uh, th through Supreme Court decision-making. And that's, of course, one of the legacies of the Warren Court is the decision-making approach is not to look at the narrow facts of the case, but to simply uh, throw out uh, some kinds of rules that they think everyone in the country ought to follow. So you've both used the expression the third degree. Where does that come from? Uh, the third degree uh, it has to do with beating. And, uh, you know, you, you take it one degree, two, and, then, and, and one more. But really, in the context of this case, the third degree means a kind of coercive pressure that doesn't involve physical violence. And there's a history here, and it's fascinating, we've got to tell the story, because the court tells of the Miranda decision. It has to do with the history of the Fifth Amendment. Every amendment has a story behind it. And this is the story of John Lilburn and the Puritan dissenters. So during the British Star Chamber, if you were a heretic, you could be summoned before the Star Chamber and forced to take an oath ex officio, which means you promise truthfully to answer any question, even though you don't know what it's going to be. Now, if you're a dissenter and you're asked, are you a Protestant, you're in a really bad position. You can either lie and go to eternal damnation, according to the views of the time. You can tell the truth and be burned as a heretic, or you can refuse to answer and be uh, imprisoned forever for contempt. This is called the cruel trilemma, a really bad situation. So Lilburn is called before the Star Chamber. He says, you've got to answer. And he says, I can't, I see if I can pronounce it, nemo tenetur prodesum sepsum. I'm, I'm, I'm mangling it, but it's basically no man is bound to accuse himself. And that principle that it's a form of the third degree if you're called before a body and required to ask questions that put you in a situation that no person uh, who has human dignity should be forced to answer is what the court is trying to channel when it translates the beatings of the 1930s, which were forbiddable under the old voluntariness standard. Everyone agrees if your will is overborne with beating that it's not permissible under the old standards. Now the court is trying to take this Puritan era history and say, now that we know that psychological pressure can be used, how can we honor the words of the Fifth Amendment today? So we have a video of, of uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren talking about the third degree. Let's watch. The third degree, for instance, was a common thing uh, 50 years ago. And in the enforcement of the law, one, one had to watch for it very carefully to see that, uh, that uh, it was not, uh, not committed. But I think comparatively few uh, law enforcement officers now are addicted to the uh, third degree, and it's because the courts have uh, have uh, abhorred that kind of conduct and have said that if uh, that kind of conduct is is indulged in uh, by the the police, that uh, uh, the man is not given a fair trial, and therefore his conviction cannot stand. And certainly that's in the interest, uh, not of the particular defendant alone, but in the interest of, uh, of everyone. Paul Cassell, what would you like to say about this? Well, it's interesting. When you talk about the third degree, I think uh, the Chief Justice, the Chief Justice Warren, hit the nail on the head when he said, even back uh, when he was speaking, comparatively few cases involve the third degree. 
And of course, uh, those tactics had long been outlawed by the Supreme Court. And so when you, what you're seeing, I think sometimes when people talk about the Miranda decision is something of a bait and switch. There's, the point is made that, well, people have been tortured to give confessions, and so now we need the Miranda rules. Well, of course, the Miranda rules aren't really uh, designed to address those kinds of things. Uh, torture had already long been abolished by the Supreme Court, and, and the real question the question that we should be talking about, and I think the Supreme Court should have been talking about more directly in Miranda, is the kinds of psychological techniques that police officers use. Uh, so here's a comment from Joe, uh, let me pull it up here, Joe Paulson on Twitter, who writes, uh, since the FBI had such a rule in place at the time, were loads, loads of federal crimes unsolved? Well, the FBI had nothing like the Miranda rules. What the FBI had was something that said, uh, you have the right to remain silent, anything you say can be used against you, and we'll get you a lawyer when you go to court. Miranda, frankly, garbles what the FBI was doing and says, well, we're simply going to impose on the country the same thing. If Miranda had imposed on the country the same rules that the FBI followed, I don't think any of us would be here tonight talking about Miranda. It wouldn't be the most controversial criminal procedure decision in the history of the United States. But what Chief Justice Warren did was take some rules requiring uh, warnings to be provided and then created in this vast exclusionary rule apparatus that throws out all kinds of confessions and imposes all kinds of, of prohibitions on even asking reasonable questions of suspects who are in custody. Comments? Um, well, we'll talk about whether it was, uh, what its effects were uh, later, but um, the cops came to feel that it basically it was um, far less than uh, both sides had asked for. Essentially, there were two polar positions at stake in Miranda. The ACLU wanted a blanket rule. You've got to have a station house lawyer there at all times, and you cannot interrogate without a lawyer present. The cops wanted the opposite, no warnings and no lawyer. Warren came up not with a radical solution, but a very moderate one, which essentially said, you have to be warned. And once you're warned, it's presumed that the statement is voluntary unless you say the magic words, I want a lawyer. And when I teach criminal procedure, really, I say the, only, the most valuable thing I can do, and now we can share this incredibly uh, sophisticated advice with C-SPAN viewers, if you're ever interrogated by the police, say the magic words, I want a lawyer, because then the interrogation has to stop. And you are just hugely empowered if you say those words. That was the big innovation of Miranda. And uh, again, we'll talk later about how many confessions that uh, led to it. Many people say it didn't actually decrease that many confessions. But, but Warren is doing three things in the, the opinion. First, he's saying you've got to read the warnings. Second, um, if you say, I want a lawyer, the interrogation stops. And third, um, in order to waive these rights, it has to be knowing, voluntary, and intelligent. And it puts the burden on the cops to prove that. And those were all important aspects of the You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. So with the background that you gave us about the Chief Justice, he was looking for a way to address what yes. he saw as the wrongs in the system and uh, told his clerks to begin to look for cases that might fit the bill. So when the cases came before the court, there were actually four. Yeah, Miranda, were, and can you talk about the other three? Yeah, there were consolidated cases designed to present the Supreme Court with a full picture of police interrogation in America. Uh, one of them was the case we've been talking about, Miranda versus Arizona, the, the rapist out, out of out of Arizona, and then there is Westover versus United States. The interesting thing there is that's a federal case, and the Solicitor General of the United States argues in front of the Supreme Court that's Thurgood Marshall, who just a year later, of course, is elevated to the Supreme Court. 
And Thurgood Marshall is arguing against the Miranda rules and against those kinds of restraints on police interrogation because, of course, they would affect not only state law enforcement agencies, but as we've been talking about tonight, FBI and other federal law enforcement agencies that would have to comply with the rules as well. So when uh, four cases go before the court, how does the process work? Uh, there are a lot of arguments. They take uh, place over time, and there are lots of phenomenal lawyers who are arguing. In addition to Thurgood Marshall, as Paul said, there was another very distinguished lawyer, Telford Taylor, a great Fourth Amendment scholar. He had uh, been a lawyer at Nuremberg, and he is arguing for the state of New York and resisting the broad uh, imposition of a Fifth and Sixth Amendment rule in all cases, but mostly he's concerned that the rule, if the court announces it, not be retroactive and not free a lot of people who've already been convicted. So you do have, um, in interestingly, two civil libertarian uh, heroes, Thurgood Marshall and also Telford Taylor, who were arguing on behalf of the government. So this came to the court February 28th through March 2nd, 1966. Ten lawyers involved with these four cases, lasting more than seven hours, um, spread out over those three days. Um, so we don't see these kinds of structures very often now. I mean, this seems like a, a, a really complicated because of the number of cases and lawyers. How does the court approach that? Yeah, well, the court is trying to put in front of it, uh, in the argument, the full array of different issues that come up in police interrogation. And I think one of the things that's striking about Miranda, when you look at it in retrospect, is, is how much it departed from the ordinary approach to judging and the ordinary approach to the judicial process in this country. Typically, you take the facts of a case and you reach a narrow rule to address those particular facts. But Again, keeping with the idea, I think, that uh, many of the justices were politicians wanting to announce some broad and sweeping rule. They set up the case so that it would be designed almost to uh, allow, I don't know, judicial legislation, regulation, whatever you want to call it, to, to come out of, out of the decision uh, that they issued. Miranda, of those four cases, uh, had one hour and 35 minutes of argument in front of the court. And as we heard uh, from Jeffrey Rosen, John Flynn and John Frank were the two lawyers, uh, with John Flynn actually making the argument before the court for Miranda. Arizona had, in addition to Telford Taylor, Arizona's Assistant Attorney General Gary Nelson, who uh, made the argument, and Dwayne Nedrud, who is attorney for the National District Attorneys Association. Anything uh, particularly noteworthy about the argument? Yeah, I think one of the things that's, that's quite striking is uh, we mentioned what a strong legal team Miranda had. His legal team is arguing the Sixth Amendment. They're saying that he didn't get a lawyer during police questioning. And in fact, Miranda's brief doesn't even argue that the Fifth Amendment was somehow violated. The reason being that the Fifth Amendment had always been limited to uh, the courtroom, that you can't be a witness against yourself in the courtroom. And so the Fifth Amendment was just not something that was the, the focus of the oral argument or certainly, certainly the briefing. Uh, and that, you know, we'll talk in a moment about how the decision comes out, but there is a complete sort of disconnect between the arguments being advanced and the decision that ultimately comes forward. So we just, welcome, just a, let me take the do calls and we'll okay. come back to you. Uh, we welcome your participation in this, uh, this conversation tonight and the lines for dialing in are divided geographically. Eastern and Central time zones, 202-748-8900. If you live in the mountain or Pacific time zones, 202-748-8901, please dial that carefully. You can also send us a tweet. Please use the hashtag landmark cases if you do so you can get into my, my Twitter stream here. And 
And finally, C-SPAN's Facebook page has a conversation underway, and uh, if you would like to make a comment there, three different ways to be involved, by phone, by tweet, uh, tweet and by uh, Facebook. So please join the conversation. We welcome your comments. Jeff Rosen. Just a brief response. Uh, uh, Flynn actually did mention the Fifth Amendment at oral argument. He says to Justice Stewart, if a man knew his rights, if he's rich enough, if he's educated enough to assert his Fifth Amendment right, if he recognizes that he has a Fifth Amendment right to request counsel, then it's okay. So he does say that the Fifth Amendment requires access to counsel, and that is key to overcoming inequality and coercion in a police station. Right. He gives a speech the next year, and he says, well, look, when we talk about the effective assistance of counsel, you should know what I did. I briefed and argued essentially, I mean, he did mention it at one point in the decision, but he says I briefed and argued the case entirely on a Sixth Amendment uh, proposition, and now the Supreme Court goes and decides it in another way. So Frank himself uh, and Flynn end up saying, well, we were, were we committing ineffective assistance of counsel because we were arguing one thing and the court decides it another way. So here are the questions that were before the court in these cases. First, is a confession admissible in a court of law if it was obtained without warnings against self-incrimination and without legal counsel? Two, who determines whether a defendant has legally waived his or her rights? Third question, what is the standard for judging whether voluntary confessions are admissible? And fourth, when should an attorney be appointed for a person if he or she cannot afford one? So these are the questions at stake uh, before the four cases, in particular Miranda, which is the, the case we're talking about. So we're in the era where the Supreme Court has begun recording audio of their oral arguments. And next you're going to hear a little bit of the two opposing attorneys, John Flynn and Arizona's Assistant Attorney General Gary Nelson. We'll listen to some of the case as they made it, and then we'll come back and talk with our two guests. The only person that can adequately advise a person like Ernest Miranda is a lawyer. And what, not, what were the lawyer advising that his rights then were? That he had the right not to incriminate himself, that he had a right not to make any statement, that he had the right to be free from further questioning by the police department, that he had the right at an ultimate time to be represented adequately by counsel in court, that if he was too indigent, too poor to employ counsel, that the state would furnish him counsel. I certainly agree with Mr. Justice Black 100% that the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, every other part of our Constitution applies to everyone. Poor, rich, ignorant, intellectual, what have you. There's no possible basis for differentiation. I don't argue that. I don't think any prosecutor of note argues it. Uh, but Miranda, I think, characteristically by the petitioner, is portrayed in this light uh, in an attempt to make something that isn't there. Jeff Rosen, what did you hear there? Um, he's not arguing that the confession is compelled by gunpoint. Flynn is not claiming that. So we're not talking about the third degree. Squarely, uh, both lawyers are, are struggling to use uh, both the Sixth Amendment, which the court has already said applies during interrogation, and also the Fifth Amendment. And they're also trying to come up with an alternative to the standard that the court already uses, which is called a totality of the circumstances test. In a case called Spano from 1959, Chief Justice Warren had written an opinion saying, you've got to look at all the characteristics of a defendant. Was he foreign-born? Was he uneducated? Was he, did he speak English well? Was, did he fully understand his rights? And it was a very uh, mushy, open-ended test. Um, that's why the lawyers there and in other parts of the oral argument were stressing Miranda only had an eighth-grade education. He wasn't well-educated. He didn't understand his rights. But at the same time, in the years since Spano, the justices and society had come to believe this was just too 
unpredictable to actually be able to overcome the coercive pressures of the station house. And that's why you hear the lawyers saying the Fifth and Sixth Amendments apply to everyone regardless of their station. It's not appropriate to make these case-by-case -case determinations. They're asking the court to come up with a bright-line rule that will protect all defendants. Paul Casal, what did you hear in the attorneys? Yeah, I hear sort of two arguments going on as Jeff's talking about. One is sort of the doctrinal argument that, well, this statement may not have been involuntary in a traditional sense, but we still think there was a lot of pressure there. The problem, of course, with that argument is that for 170 years in American history, these kinds of statements had routinely been admitted. And so the Supreme Court is, is grappling with the idea that do we want to throw out everything that's gone on before and, and announce a new rule? The other thing I hear here is a pragmatic concern, because if you take the arguments that are being made seriously, particularly the, the Sixth Amendment argument we've been talking about, and you say Miranda should have had a lawyer during police interrogation, well, the lawyer is going to say, well, we don't want to answer any questions right now. No, no, say nothing at all, nothing whatsoever. And if you go with that route, what you end up with is no police interrogation in America. Before we find out what the judges said, uh, the court's final decision was and how we got there, let's listen to some of our callers. First is Josh, Algona, Iowa. Hi, Josh, you're on the air. Hi. Um, my question is, you know, from what I know, it seems like Chief Justice Warren, having been a district attorney, had wanted to expand the rights in the Escobedo versus Illinois case. And my question is, why was he so vested in expanding the rights that were given in that case? I'd like to hear both of you talk about that. You want to start, Paul Cassell? Well, I think one of the things that's going on in the 1960s is there's this notion that criminals are a product of their environment, that they're in some sense maybe not as accountable for their decisions. They haven't gotten a high education, uh, as we heard about with Miranda. And so against that backdrop, there's, I think it's, it's sort of a, a perverse interest in, in cheering for the underdog that somehow police officers have outwitted suspects when they, when they come up with with something that gets them uh, to confess. And so that's, I think, uh, uh, a strange sort of backdrop to the, to the decision. I don't know what Jeff thinks about this. You know, the notion of Chief Justice Warren as a soft on criminals guy just isn't convincing. This uh, Chief Justice wrote Terry versus Ohio, which is one of the most pro-law enforcement decisions ever written, which says that the cops are allowed to stop you and pat you down on reasonable suspicion uh, without a warrant. Um, but what Warren did care a lot about was human dignity. He uses that phrase in the decision. He was troubled when he wrote the Spano case that the guy who was involved in a barroom brawl there and ended up killing someone may have been acting in self-defense and yet according to the state rules at the time was liable for a really big prison sentence. So he, in a, as a kind of pragmatic judge, didn't think that this totality of the circumstances test was protective enough at a time when he was really troubled by uh, police violence. He understood uh, the third degree, as we heard on the clip. He understood what was going on in the South. So uh, far from being kind of an ACLU guy who just wants to uh, stop the cops, stop all interrogations by recording, by requiring a lawyer at all times, I think he's trying to come up with a moderate, pragmatic compromise that will really restrain the police in, at a time when he thinks that's necessary. Braxton is up next in Long Beach, California. Oh, yes. Uh, my question is, understand, I want to go back to uh, before Miranda Rights was even uh, brought into play. The question is, uh, what was the FBI's uh, rights and how did they uh, present their rights to suspects before Miranda? Okay, thank you. Yeah, what the FBI said uh, 
was that they instructed their special agents to tell people they had the right to remain silent and that anything they said could be used against them. Those were the kinds of rights that were given to Miranda himself. Uh, but with respect to whether they could have an attorney during questioning, the FBI would say, well, look, once you go to court, that's when your Sixth Amendment rights to counsel apply. And so the FBI had never done the sort of thing that uh, was under discussion, and, and we'll talk about in a minute in the opinion, uh, and had never done anything that said, look, if somebody says they don't want to talk, the FBI has to stop asking them questions. And that's, uh, that's I think, the, the, the frankly radical step that Miranda takes and the one that's been uh, harmful for law enforcement uh, from that day uh, even to today. Next is a viewer named Celeste in Tulsa. Hi, Celeste, you're on. Hi, I attend San Miguel Tulsa Middle School, and my question for your guest is, how long did it take for this case to reach the Supreme Court? Okay, Celeste, before you go, uh, tell me about your interest in this case as a middle school student. Well, my social studies teacher brought this up, and he said that if we get on, we get extra credit in the class. <laughs> well, good for you for getting on and getting extra credit. Thank you for participating tonight. Congratulations. That is wonderful to get extra credit. And you can also tell your teacher that we know that the crime occurred in 1963 and the case came down in 1966. So it took three years between the crime and the decision. Is that a long time in Supreme Court context? No, I think uh, it, it seems like Goldilocks just right. <laughs> uh, next up is Glenn in Freeland, Michigan. Thank you um, very much, everyone. My question is about, uh, does Miranda apply to uh, legal and illegal aliens? And specifically, I'm thinking about that case in San Bernardino, where it kind of um, blurs the line between regular crime and terrorism. If the lady, who I guess was a um, legal alien, if she had survived and uh, they were looking at it as a terrorist case, would uh, Miranda have applied to her specifically, for example? Thanks for your question. It's a, it's a great question, and I'll let uh, Paul take it away, but just to note that the question of to what degree Miranda applies to terrorism suspects abroad is an open question that the courts are deciding now. They haven't definitively decided whether suspects interrogated outside of the territorial United States for terrorism need their Miranda rights. And my understanding is that uh, the interrogation of anyone within the United States, uh, they would have to be read their Miranda rights. Yeah, and Jeff's exactly right on that. I mean, that's one of the things that the Miranda decision does is extends rights to everyone inside the United States. You can have some interesting questions of, about what if an FBI agent is overseas and how do the rights uh, come into play in that situation. You can also have some interesting questions that come up in what are called public safety situations nowadays. If there was a ticking time bomb that a terrorist had set, uh, the Supreme Court has suggested that maybe in those very narrow circumstances, Miranda warnings might not need to be given because of the extreme public safety concern that exists. So Brian Henchy on Twitter who asked, does the Miranda decision apply to foreign combatants uh, on U.S. soil? So it, the answer would be it depends? It, it depends. I mean, it, it, the question is, is the, are we talking about things in a military context in which then Miranda does not apply, or are we talking about them in a civilian law enforcement context, in which case, of course, Miranda does apply. Jim is in Caliente, California. Hi, Jim. You are on. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, a, a comment. I'm a retired attorney, and I began law school in uh, autumn of 1966, and my criminal law professor, Fred Inbo, 
at Northwestern, was known as Freddie the Cop, really did not like Miranda. He was adamant about how dangerous it was for police work. So it's, um, uh, and I just brought back that remembrance. <laughs> but um, also, uh, Judge Cassell, you were talking about the court having politicians on it. I think one could say that the court now perhaps has too many judges on it and not enough um, perhaps people from outside of the appellate court and Supreme Court um, clerk circuit. I, I, I don't really like the way it's gone in recent years. Anyway, thank you. Can I just, uh, he mentions Fred Inbow, which is really in interesting. Inbow had written the police interrogation manual with different techniques and tactics and so forth. And so I think one of the reasons that Professor Inbow was disappointed in the Miranda decision is he discovers that all of his uh, techniques and tactics have been quoted as a reason for the Supreme Court needing to step in and regulate police interrogation. Of course, the big irony of the, the Supreme Court's Miranda decision is it doesn't regulate or, or restrict any of the techniques, the psychological techniques that Inbow used. And so he, did, he reworked his textbook uh, the next year and it became a bestseller because, after all, what better book to look at than the one cited by Chief Justice Warren in the Supreme Court's decision. Two more questions and then we will come back to the decision in the case. Dale is here locally, Springfield, Virginia. You're on, Dale. Yes, good evening. Um, I just wanted to point out that the Supreme Court did not just rush to the exclusionary rule um, as their first attempt to curtail this sort of activity by the police. There had been a whole series of decisions leading up to it, and finally the court seemed to just be convinced that the only way to get the police to follow the rules they were laying down was to remove the incentive for them to violate the law by telling them, if you do this, we're not going to allow the evidence to be used. And I think that's an important factor here that's uh, being glossed over. Very important point. Uh, absolutely, Miranda's not coming out of nowhere. The MAP decision from 1961 applying the exclusionary rule to the states arguably is, has as much or more practical importance than Miranda itself. And the Miranda can be seen as a pro-police decision. As Paul says, you know, ironically, it didn't uh, prevent uh, the use of trickery or deception and in some ways, it inoculated the police. All you have to do is say the magic words, and then you can use the same interrogation manuals that Chief Justice Warren is expressing concern about, and now we learn about their, uh, their, their origin. Um, so think of all the things Miranda didn't do. It didn't require the videoing of interrogations. It, it, it didn't actually substantively uh, prevent uh, deception or trickery. For all those reasons, uh, the court definitely wants a bright line rule, but it wasn't a rule that uh, uniformly disfavored the police. So we can hear the continuing debate over Miranda all these years later. And in fact, it was a divided court. It was, ended up being a 5-4 decision. Uh, the majority, Chief Justice Earl Warren, uh, Justices Hugo Black, William Brennan, William, uh, William O. Douglas, and Abe Fortas. The minority, Justice uh, John Harlan, Byron White, Potter Stewart, and Tom Clark. Is there a backstory that we know of of how they got to a 5-4 decision in this case? I well, I think that? one of the things we've been talking about tonight was uh, the FBI practices, uh, those who were pushing, uh, Chief Justice Warren, for example, pushing for broad regulation of the police, said, look, the FBI is already administering this. It wouldn't be any problem with expending those practices uh, to uh, other agencies. The problem, of course, was that the FBI had not been doing anything like the sorts of things that 
Miranda ended up imposing on not just federal agencies, but every agency in the United States. From time to time in, this, in these cases, we've heard stories about uh, justices finding coalitions to bring them to their side. Are there any good stories in the Miranda case that either of you know of that convinced somebody to go one side or the other in this one? Or were the, the sides pretty well lined up from the outset? Do either of you know? I don't know, Baxter, do you? Well, I know that there was some debate about, and then the FBI warnings were included. I also know that they've gone back now to look at some of the draft opinions that were written. One of the things that was added in the decision at the last minute was a statement that, well, this is one way of regulating police interrogation, but we leave it open to Congress and the states. Maybe they'll come up with some other ways of regulating police interrogation. And so that kind of compromise, if you will, at least verbally articulated or, or, or in the decision articulated compromise was was critical to building the coalition. I, I did just want to say, since we've been talking about the FBI warnings, they're quoted in the Miranda decision. Here's what the FBI said at the time. If any person being interviewed after warning of counsel decides he wishes to consult with counsel before proceeding further, the interview is terminated. FBI agents don't pass judgment on the ability of the person to pay for counsel. And it also gives the warning. The other thing I want to say is the best way to understand the Miranda decision itself, go to the National Constitution Center's phenomenal interactive mm -hmm. constitution, and you'll see Paul Cassell and Kate Stiff, Paul nominated by the Federalist Society, Kate Stiff by the American Constitution Society, with a beautiful common statement about what Miranda means, constitutioncenter.org. And I, I, I've got to do the plug now because it's so cool. So you, you can read the Fifth Amendment on this side I'll of the... put it under my camera here. here put it under, under your camera. You can read the Fifth Amendment in all of its uh, beauty. And then you see this common statement where professors uh, Cassell and Stiff talk about what everyone agrees the text was, the history was. I think it's so inspiring that you, although you have different perspectives, were able to come up with this common statement, and then you have separate statements about what you disagree about. So that's a great place for viewers to begin to really understand the decision itself. And we, and we got it on screen. So uh, the Chief Justice chose to write the opinion himself. It was 60-plus pages, and he read it aloud in the courtroom in its entirety. How often does that happen? Not very often, and certainly not with the uh, 60-page opinions. You can imagine it took uh, you know several hours to to do that. But it was, I think, everyone knew when the decision came down. It was a landmark decision and was going to have reverberations that would echo for for years and years. And in fact, uh, the Miranda rules, as Jeff Rosen said, were written into the decision. So the text was really excerpted and then became what we heard at the outset, the used so often in police and crime dramas. Here's a bit of Chief Justice Earl Warren's 60-plus page opinion so you get the flavor of it. At the outset, if a person in custody is to be subjected to interrogation, he must first be informed in clear and unequivocal terms that he has the right to remain silent. For those unaware of the privilege, the warning is needed simply to make them aware of it. The threshold requirement for an intelligent decision as to its exercise. The Fifth Amendment privilege is so fundamental to our system of constitutional rule we will not pause to inquire in individual cases whether the defendant was aware of his rights without a warning being given. What are you hearing right. there? Well, one of the things that I think is, is frankly strange about the decision is there are 50 pages of text, and it's only at the last two pages, around page 49 and 50, that you get to discussion of the specific facts of the case. There have been a lot of commentators that have read the decision and said, it, well, it, it kind of reads like a legislative report with an attached statute, and oh, by the way, it handles a couple of the cases. So there's a truly legislative feel to the decision that I think stands quite at odds with uh, what most of the decisions coming out of the Supreme Court today look like. Jeff Rosen? I think that you can think that the decision was true to the spirit of the Fifth and Sixth Amendment and not think it was radical, but agree with Paul 
that it does have a legislative quality. Warren says both at the beginning and again in the middle and at the end, this is what the rules are. To repeat, these are the rules that we want the cops to read. And the fact that they seem to be taken from the FBI reports and other sources but hadn't previously been part of state criminal law on a broad scale led to fierce criticism that it was indeed legislative and set off a political firestorm. So before we get to the uh, aftermath of it, we should tell the rest of Ernesto Miranda's story because it's really quite a colorful and sad one. Uh, what happened to him next? He's just won this landmark case in the Supreme Court. So what happens legally? So he is uh, paroled in 1972. Uh, uh, he's arrested again in 1974 for parole violations. He goes back to prison. After his release, he goes back to his old neighborhoods. He actually sells the Miranda cards for one or two dollars, um, autographing them, and that's the way he makes his living in a sort of poignant um, uh, moment. And then in 1976, he's playing poker in a bar. There's a fist fight. He's fatally stabbed with a knife and killed. In his pocket are found copies of the Miranda warning. It really quite an arc to his life. Uh, he also tried to appeal his, his conviction right. once again to the Supreme Court, but was not successful, right? Yeah, he's reconvicted uh, because a confession he made to his wife, of all people, uh, is admitted, his common law wife, and it turned out that because she was merely a common law wife, the rules of spousal privilege did not block the use of that confession. So I think it's important to understand that the only way Miranda was convicted was he gave a confession to his wife rather than to the police officers. The police officer's confession was thrown out, but not the other. And here's an interesting coda to Ernesto Miranda's tale. Killed, as you said, in a bar fight with the Miranda cards in his pocket, and his killers, when they're arrested, are read the Miranda rules. Yes. So, uh, we have Carol Cooley, the officer that you met early on, who was the arresting officer in the case, um, adding more to this story. Let's listen. After the Supreme Court decision in 1966, the various departments around the state and the country developed their own Miranda warning cards based upon the decision. And the cards that we have here are the original cards that uh, we had Miranda sign uh, as a souvenir after he got out of prison. And then we have the revised cards, which are below it, and that is the one in English and the one in Spanish on the back. Uh, the revised cards did not require a signature. Now, Miranda uh, used to get these cards from police officers that he would see in this downtown area, and uh, he would introduce himself as the famous Ernesto Miranda, and then he would ask officers if they had any spare cards and they would freely give him some cards and then he would take those cards and sign them and he would try to sell them for a dollar or two. And uh, there's uh, the arresting officers story of the uh, person who gave his name to the Miranda rights. We're going to go back to calls and get some more of your comments and reaction and questions about this. Next up is John, Westchester, Pennsylvania. Hi, John. Hi. My understanding is that you can only invoke your right to have a lawyer present when you are being interrogated. So could you please clarify uh, at what point you are being interrogated and if that can happen only in a police station or if it can happen in other places? Thank you. Thank you. Will you teach uh, sure. criminal Sure. My so. students were taking uh, their criminal procedure exam this morning and uh, 
uh, the Miranda rules are triggered when someone is in custody, when they've been taken into the police station as Miranda was. So typically they don't apply when someone's being questioned in their home or on the street in the immediate aftermath of the crime. The other part, as the caller mentioned, is, is interrogation. The police officers have to be asking questions or, or the functional equivalent of asking questions in order to, to bring the Miranda rules into play. Next uh, is a call from Brad, who is watching us in Desert Hot Springs, California. Hello, Brad, your question. Yes, uh, I was uh, detained for a DUI stop, and the uh, uh, officer on duty um, gave me the field test. I passed that. I went to the breathalyzer. I passed that. He wanted to take me into the police station for a blood test. Once there, I had uh, my glasses taken away from me, and uh, I wasn't allowed to read the, the paper in front of them. Anyway, to make a long story short, he marks it saying I refused it. I was detained. He kept asking me questions. I wasn't read my Miranda rights until three hours later. At what point is he supposed to read their Miranda rights? The interesting thing is that you don't have to be read your Miranda rights to have a blood test because the court has held that blood is not testimonial. It's merely physical evidence. We may remember from long ago that uh, during the uh, Clinton impeachment investigation, we saw the president of the United States in the White House having his blood uh, taken. He had no Fifth Amendment right to refuse that because of the court's holding that that is not testimonial. In fact, I, the thing I remember most vividly from my criminal procedure class in law school was my teacher at, uh, jumping up and down and saying, blood, blood, blood. And I guarantee uh, if there's nothing else you remember from this program, it may be just those words because that, uh, although it seems very dramatic that the police are allowed to extract blood from you without your consent because you're not actually incriminating yourself with your own words, according to the Supreme Court, you don't have a Fifth Amendment right or a Miranda right. So uh, next is Laura in uh, Jeffrey Rosen's new hometown of Philadelphia. You're on mm -hmm. the air, Laura. Hi. Um, this actually goes back to something that Professor Castle said a while ago. Um, and if I understand you correctly, it, it sounds like you were saying before 63, before 66, you know, police giving the third degree to suspects was a lot worse than it is now. Um, hasn't there been a lot of information coming out recently about false confessions? And my understanding is that the situation hasn't improved at all. Well, so let's talk a little bit about false confessions, because one of the interesting things in the Miranda decision is sort of the, the complete, I would say, overprotection of some people and underprotection of others. It overprotects, uh, I think, professional criminals, because what happens is they lawyer up, they ask for an attorney, and, and, and then no questions can be asked to those people. On the other hand, if you're innocent and you, and you haven't committed the crime, what's the first thing you do? Oh, I'll waive my rights. Where's the form? Yeah, I want to talk. And so, as the caller mentions, uh, there have been documented cases of mentally retarded persons or, or others who have been convinced that they've committed a crime or somehow talked into false confessions. And, and Miranda doesn't do anything for innocent people. Something like videotaping, where we could look at the whole interrogation and figure out exactly what happened. That might do some good for, for innocent people, but Miranda has been, I think it's fair to say, a complete disappointment for preventing things like false confessions. Jeff Rosen, uh, I don't know if you can answer this hypothetical. Tom Curry is a journalist who's watching our program. A what if, he says. Would Miranda decision have been issued if Tom Dewey or a Warren ticket had won the 1948 presidential election? Wow, what a great what if. Okay, so obviously Earl Warren is not going to be 
chief justice, but on the other hand, uh, uh, we have a moderate Republican President Dewey, who is still uh, might have appointed a moderate Republican like Warren, who after all was his running mate. And Warren's great achievement was as a statesman. We talked in the Brown case about how he was able to bring his colleagues together. And here, too, whether you think it's legislative or you think it's an act of statesmanship, it was this practical politician uh, from a Republican Party that at the time was not, you know, especially uh, uh, much tougher on crime than uh, Democrats were, who was able to come up with this ruling. So think aloud. Although there is no one like Earl Warren, you could imagine another moderate Republican chief being appointed who might even have come up with a similar decision. Steve in Sunbright, Tennessee. Hi, Steve. Hi. Um, I got two questions. One, is there a statute of limitations on when somebody can file an appeal when they feel that their Miranda rights have been violated. I was involved in something when I was 19 years old, and I was pretty well forced into sonic confession, not physically, but mentally. And I have tried several times to get court papers and everything else, and nobody will give them to me. So is there a way to do that? And if so, how would I go about doing it? If I can just answer that, one of the things the Supreme Court has said since Miranda is that those Miranda issues have to be raised immediately at the time of trial, and, and you can't raise them later on. Uh, it becomes too collateral to allow it on a habeas corpus petition or something like that. So uh, for the non-lawyer here asking this question, the Supreme Court anticipated in its decision that there would be a flood of appeals of cases that, have, that uh, had been heard, tried before this uh, decision. So they put a marker down. It's the June 13th rule uh, that that it would be affecting all cases going forward and not uh, not allowing appeal before. That to me was was uh, confusing because if it is a right, it's a right, not one set by time. Well, and, and what was interesting too is there were a number of appeals that were in in process that had been filed before then. And so there were truly cases of, of murderers. There was one case, I believe, in New York where somebody had knifed uh, four uh, or five people and, and killed them. Uh, that confession, which was perfectly valid uh, when it, the police had obtained it, because obviously they didn't have Miranda cards and Miranda rules, was, was thrown out. Fred Graham has a very interesting book called The Self-Inflicted Wound, in which he said, whatever you think about the Miranda decision, the idea to let it apply to police interrogations that took place before the decision was announced was self-inflicted uh, damage on this country because it created the spectacle of, of murderers, bloody murderers, literally walking free. The court uh, is a pragmatic institution. There are other big criminal procedure decisions that are not retroactive. Remember Telford Taylor, the great uh, advocate for, for New York, begged the court not to make it all retroactive. So you got to draw some lines, and that's the one they drew. So we're going to go back to Carol Cooley, the, the Phoenix police detective, talking about the impact of this decision on him, his fellow officers, and, uh, and, and really what they thought about it. Let's listen. They thought that the police had abused these individuals and taken advantage of them, and therefore the police were bad guys in the minds of a lot of people. Those people that knew the facts didn't see it that way, but you have to look at the general public. So there was an impact 
on me that I felt like I had been uh, put in an awkward position, that I had uh, been uh, somewhat demeaned because people thought that we had abused him. It was the most friendly conversation you could ever have. We sat down with him and it was like talking to an old friend. We did everything according to the book, in my opinion. And I was very surprised and I thought, well, when I first heard it, it was going up before the Supreme Court. I didn't even know about the state Supreme Court, having already looked at it and upheld it. And I thought, well, it's going up, but I don't think we're going to lose it because I think we, we did a good job, in my opinion. And then when it turned out different than I thought it would, well, as a police officer, you accept those things. That's, if that's the way they want us to do business, that's the way we will do business. Well, there's not much I could do. All I could do is say, well, I think the Supreme Court made a mistake. That's what I thought. We do the job according to what they tell us to do. And uh, sometimes the results are negative because we have less uh, convictions. We have more crime because a lot of people are turned back into society to continue to do their evil. And, uh, but hey, there's no skin off my nose or the police department's nose. When these guys go back to work, we'll just try to catch them again. Carol Cooley, the retired police detective, uh, the arresting officer in the case of Ernesto Miranda that went to the Supreme Court talking about the impact on his life and career. I wanted to put another personal story on the table. And this is Patrick Leahy, Democrat of Vermont senator, uh, who has headed the Judiciary Committee. He's now the senior Democrat on the committee. And at the time Miranda came around, he was in Vermont, his home state, in the state's attorney's office. He tells us a story in an interview about the Miranda decision and its effect on the state. Let's listen. At that time, it was very controversial. Uh, what do you mean we have to uh, read this guilty accused we have here is somebody once said, in fact, a former attorney general once used that expression, the guilty accused. But uh, what do you mean we have to tell them of their rights? Of I said, of course you do. Because think of it this way. What if you were arrested for something? And you may think, look, they got the wrong guy. Wouldn't you want to know what your rights are? And that sunk in pretty heavily. He also went on to tell us in that interview that he, at his own expense, had little cards pay, pay, printed up with the Miranda rights on and passed them out to police officers around the state as he was educating them <laughs> on what the Supreme Court decision was all about. So, gentlemen, uh, I've got lots of comments here from people about the effects of all this. Let me put one on the table. This is wild and wonderful EP West Virginia Law, who writes, Every lawyer knows that police found a myriad of tactics for evading Miranda. Refining the decision was and is ongoing. What's your reaction? Well, that... Oh, God. If I can just say, I've done sure. a lot of research on the effects of Miranda, and what you see is there's been a staggering effect on law enforcement in this country. Uh, before Miranda, uh, if you go back to the start of, of the 1960s, you're looking at about a 60% crime clearance rate in this country. And then immediately, what you see uh, in 1966, 67, and 68 is you see a dramatic reduction in crime clearance rates. Crime clearance rates uh, fell to around 45%. And they've remained there in the 50 years since. If you quantify that, that means about 60,000 violent crimes and more than 100,000 property crimes each year go unsolved, even if you control for other factors. 
And it's, as I say, it's not just reading the words off the card that Miranda uh, uh, requires. It also forbids police from asking questions if somebody refuses to allow questioning to occur. That's the damaging blow that, uh, that Miranda inflicted on, on law enforcement in this country. It truly did handcuff the cops. Well, this is a very important empirical debate, and uh, uh, Paul, Professor Cassell, Judge Cassell has made an important contribution to it. There are strong arguments on the other side. So here are just some of the big statistics on the other side. They're offered by people like Yale Kamazar uh, in his book, uh, in, in, in his books, and Kamazar notes that the currently prevailing view, even among police and prosecutors, is that Miranda's impact on conviction rates is negligible. Typically, only 20 to 25 percent of suspects invoke their right to silence at any point during interrogation. Carefully conducted studies indicate that in roughly 55 to 65 percent of all interrogations, the police ultimately succeed in obtaining an incriminating statements, rates comparable to those that commonly prevailed prior to Miranda. Now, this is an important statistical debate. We can go back and forth. Uh, he, Professor uh, Cassell is the expert and not I, but I do... Uh, endorse the view that after having initially resisted Miranda very strongly and uh, President Nixon denounced it and ran against it in the 1968 campaign, the police in the 80s and 90s came to accept Miranda for the very reason that the caller states, which is that it's so easy to get around. All you have to do is say the magic words and then you can resort to the same trickery, the same deception, the same subtle uh, coercive pressures that uh, allow people to uh, confess in ways that go against their interests. Miranda did not require that people make good decisions about whether to confess, and indeed it's rarely, unless you believe in some purgative uh, notion of divine absolution, it's generally not a good idea to confess if you're, if you're guilty. But Miranda did make it much easier for the police to inoculate themselves against future challenges, and for that reason I think a, cons a, con a prevailing view among many law enforcement officers is that Miranda is not bad for the police. So we talked about this before, but just to get it on the record, in addition to Miranda, there were a, a, a suite of policing-related decisions that the Warren Court took on. Let me put a number of them on the screen. Include Griffin versus Illinois in 1956, the early case. Map versus Ohio, which is a Dalry map story, which we told two weeks ago in our series. Gideon versus Wainwright, the 63 case, which has been referred to by our two guests here. Es Escobedo versus Illinois in 64, which did what? Escobedo case. Said that you got to have a lawyer during interrogation. That was the building block for Miranda. And then Miranda in 1966, and then Terry versus Ohio, and remind us what Terry versus Ohio did in Terry 68. versus Ohio is the so-called stop and frisk case, which legitimizes constitutionally the ability of law enforcement officers to stop someone who's suspected of a crime, and if necessary, frisk them because they might be carrying a weapon. So you, we talked about the big controversy about this decision, and again, the court was a 5-4 decision. They uh, really argued it strongly on both sides as well. Um, you mentioned President Nixon campaigned on a law and order campaign in the 1968 election. Congress also got into the act yes. and passed the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act in 1968. What were they trying to do? Well, Congress was outraged by the Miranda decision because criminals were going free and there was expected to be a very dramatic effect on law enforcement. And so in 1968, Congress passed a law essentially reestablishing the old voluntariness test for admitting confessions in federal court because that's all the jurisdiction that Congress has is to regulate federal procedures. We have about 20 minutes left and I wanted to talk about what's happened to Miranda in the years ensuing. So there have been a number of cases and we've referred to some of them that have begun to refine Miranda. What are the important ones to know about and what was refined? Well, the 
I mean, the most important one is the one that upheld it. Should we should we mm -hmm. talk about sure. that? Uh, this this is the Dickerson case, and P Professor Casal Paul had a crucial role in it. So, um, what, what, I'll let him tee it up. Uh, we should go back and forth about it. But just to say, essentially, the argument was that Congress should that the court should reinstate the test that Congress had embraced in 1968 and admit confessions if they were voluntary, uh, defined as. Uh, factors like the time elapsing between the arrest and arraignment, whether the defendant knew the offense, whether he was advised of his rights or not. What is significant about the Dickerson case as it was teed up is that not a single administration had defended it, neither from, from Johnson through the Bush administration. No wow. presidents had insisted that it, in fact, be used as the substitute for Miranda. And therefore, when the court surprised a lot of people. This is one of the most dramatic decisions of the Rehnquist court that after uh, decades of criticizing Miranda, Chief Justice Rehnquist himself cast the sixth vote to uphold it. Um, they're acting not against the wishes of uh, subsequent White Houses, but actually in conjunction with them. It ended up being a 7-2 decision in the uh, end, right? Uh, forgive, forgive me for that. Uh, yeah, right. so this was the year 2000, and uh, the majority was Justice Rehnquist, Breyer, Ginsburg, Kennedy, O'Connor, Souter, and Stevens, and the minority, Justices Scalia and Thomas, and as we learned from Jeff Rosen, uh, the the judge was asked to, by special invitation, give an Amici argument, a friend of the court argument, that Miranda yeah. should be overruled. So tell us your perspective on this. Well, I argued in defense of the 1968 statute. There is the, the history that Jeff's referring to, I think it's fair to say, is disputed. I, I, certainly President Johnson immediately said that we're not going to enforce this law, but President Nixon, who'd campaigned on a law and order campaign, uh, said that it should be argued in court. And eventually I ended up, as you mentioned, arguing it as a, as a friend of the, the court, one of the strange things that happened, why is a law professor arguing in defense of a federal statute? Well, the Clinton administration refused to defend the law, even though there were very strong arguments that could be made on its behalf. And, and I think that was one of the unfortunate things and ultimately set the stage for the, the ruling against it. If the, if the Clinton administration had sent their solicitor general to defend the law, I think perhaps things might have come out differently. So here's a bit of what Chief Justice William Rehnquist wrote in the Dickerson versus United States opinion. We hold that Miranda, being a constitutional decision of this court, may not be in effect overruled by an act of Congress. And we decline to overrule Miranda ourselves. We therefore hold that Miranda and its progeny in this court govern the admissibility of statements made during custodial interrogation in both state and federal courts. I mean, it's a remarkable decision. Chief Justice Rehnquist, both as an associate justice and chief, has repeatedly said Miranda is not a constitutional decision and suggested that he would come up to the edge of overruling it. And then he just shocks everyone by 7 to 2 um, upholding it. Why did he do this? Well, one thing he says is that Miranda has come to be accepted by the culture. And this causes Justice Antonin Scalia's, I mean, his head almost explodes. He's so upset about this rule. He says, uh, the court has converted Miranda into the very Cheops pyramid of judicial arrogance. I didn't know what Cheops pyramid was or even know how to pronounce it before Justice Scalia wonderfully uh, reminded all of us that Cheop was the great king who was so arrogant that he believed he could build the biggest pyramid in history and uh, killed a lot of people doing that. Um, but Chief Justice Rehnquist really was, uh, like Warren in some ways, a pragmatist, much more conservative, of course, and as an associate justice, he'd been the Lone Ranger and had been a little bit uh, pure in his constitutional views. But I think he was moved, as all the 
uh, the other seven justices were. We saw those TV warnings. We saw the fact that this symbolizes law enforcement uh, across the world, thanks to its acceptance in popular culture. Uh, and that combined with the fact that the other justices thought that the cops had accepted it meant that uh, Professor Cassell made a very powerful arguments, you know, a valiant, this is a case brought in good faith, but seven to two, rejected. Pete is in Fortson, Georgia. Hi, Pete, you are on the air. Hi, uh, good evening. My question is about um, the Salinas v. Texas case in 2013. Um, I think what uh, Professor uh, Cassell was saying about some of the inherent weaknesses in Miranda were in full display in that case where we see a very divided court. Um, try, I think uh, the upshot of that case is that you have to explicitly invoke your right to silence, that you can't just be silent. Um, but that, again, assumes that you know those rights and you know when you're in custody um, and that the police cannot take that opportunity away from you, but they don't necessarily have to um, give you uh, the, the cue. So can you guys please explain that case? And I guess, do you think it's been rightly decided? Thank you. Well, that's one of the follow-on cases. Uh, I think one of the things that's remarkable about Miranda, the Salinas case, you know, decided almost 50 years after the decision. And the basic framework that Earl Warren set out in that decision still applies today. And I, I view that perhaps a little bit differently than, than Jeff does it. You know, some people look at the Dickerson decision and say, well, that was a bullet that was dodged. Uh, we didn't have to overrule Miranda. I view Dickerson and, and some of these other decisions like the Salinas case as an opportunity missed. Uh, we haven't updated Miranda at all in the last 50 years. We haven't looked at emerging technologies like videotaping. If I'm an innocent person that's being questioned by a police officer, I would much rather have a video camera running during the interrogation to make sure that there aren't threats being used and so that the entire process can be reconstructed later. But instead, the only thing I get is uh, officer reading a few words off of a card and, and making me sign a waiver form. I think we need to think about new ways of, of implementing Miranda that at the same time not only protect suspects better, but maybe give law enforcement the ability to ask a few more questions. And next is Brian in Oconquin, Washington. I'm sure I didn't say that correctly. Okanagan. Thank you. Um, my question is that uh, the speaker of this book is keen on having police officers ask more questions. And my question is, does he believe, does he believe that uh, the police should be, keep on asking questions when the suspect says, I don't want to talk? That Miranda says that the, 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 the police has a stop question at a certain point. Does he believe that they that that should right should not exist? So I think what we ought to be doing is changing the Miranda rules so that they don't have these hard and fast what I would call question cutoff rules. I call this the mother may I rule of police questioning. If police officers have to give a warning and then a waiver to someone in order to ask questions, if somebody says no, I don't want to ask questions, they can't ask even reasonable questions for a reasonable period of time. So I would go to the voluntariness rules in those kinds of situations and allow police officers to continue to ask questions so long as they weren't extracting an involuntary confession. If, if I could just jump in on unequivocally endorsing uh, Paul's suggestion of videotaping 
uh, interrogations. We're having a huge debate in this country right now about the use of body cams, and obviously iPhones are transforming the encounters between cops and citizens. Uh, the American Law Institute uh, on a committee that I'm uh, privileged to serve on is trying to come up with rules for uh, body cams. And suffice it to say that there are plenty of civil libertarians who agree that uh, videotaping interrogations would help police and suspects. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Miranda should be thrown out as well. Both uh, could be good. And there's also no doubt, as, as, as Paul said and as the previous uh, caller suggested too, the, 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 the Roberts courts has changed since the Rehnquist court reaffirmed the Dickerson decision, and dissenters in cases like the Salinas case, which the previous uh, caller mentioned, and also the Tompkins case from 2010, a suspect doesn't invoke his Miranda rights, and the court says that he uh, waived his rights because he failed to uh, uh, do so unambiguously. Um, the dissenters say the court is cutting back on Miranda. Th this is not a decision that has as broad support as it did as, as the time of Dickerson, and it remains hotly contested on the court today. In, in fact, on Twitter, Twi Tripwire G asked, could you please comment on the effects of the 2010 Tompkins decision? And in that, the again, a 5-4 that the suspects must tell police they are going to remain quiet if they want to invoke their right to remain silent and silent, excuse me, and stop an interrogation, just as they must tell police that they want a lawyer. So there has to be an affirmative action uh, by the part of the suspect. Well, that's such a, a unique fact pattern. It's a situation where essentially somebody sits quiet for 90 minutes and then eventually uh, ends up making a statement. Uh, those kinds of decisions, the Salinas decision in 2013, Tompkins in 2010, cover those particular fact patterns. But in day-to-day -day law enforcement, we don't see any, I think, real change in police effectiveness. And, and again, that's not just my view on the data. If you look at FBI data, the crime clearance rate today in, in 2014, 2015 is the same as it was in 2010, was, is the same as it was in about 1970. Sadly, police in America today are less effective in clearing or solving crimes than they were before the Warren Court started handing down its decisions. Just quickly to give the two views on the impact of, uh, of Tompkins and Salinas, the ACLU criticized the court in Tompkins for cutting down on Miranda, opening the door to prolonged interrogations intended to wear suspects down. Others in favor of the decision, like John Yu, the former deputy uh, uh, U.S. Attorney General, said the new flexibility would ease the burden on military intelligence and police and permit more flexible response to terrorism within the criminal justice paradigm. So these decisions are having an effect. Kevin in Tucson. You're on, Kevin. Hi. My question concerns uh, shifts in American law enforcement policy in the 60s more generally. Uh, so with the implementation of the exclusionary rule and other Warren Court rulings, including Miranda v. Arizona, advancing police professionalism, I'm wondering if it was the court itself that helped shift law enforcement policy to more professional level, or was it actually public opinion and the social turbulence surrounding questionable law enforcement policies, especially in the South of the 1960s? that had the biggest impact in changing law enforcement policy. Thank you very much. Society versus the courts. Such a superb question. You know whose book I would love you to read, and I love to recommend great constitutional books? The late William Stuntz, one of the great scholars of criminal procedure, wrote really a beautiful book about the relationship between public opinion and criminal procedure, and among the many good points that he makes, uh, it's that the court tends to mirror broader trends in society rather than cause them, and when crime in the uh, 60s went uh, down, the court became more liberal. When it went up in the 70s, it uh, became more conservative and vice versa. So the notion that the court transformed society doesn't seem right. On the other hand, the criminal procedure revolution of the Warren Court was 
called a revolution for a reason. It did certainly change the rules that the police operated under in a significant way. And it certainly came to symbolize the importance of respecting what Warren called the dignity of every individual in a way that had broader cultural shifts. Uh, and then Temagesgen on Twitter asked, did Miranda work? We'll leave this as a comment. Most people waive their rights in hopes of gaming the system and controlling the police interrogation. That's uh, their point of view. We have about seven minutes left in our program. I wanted to tell you we have just one more in our 12-part series. Uh, if you have missed any of it and you want to learn more about the cases, we have a very robust website in partnership with the National Constitution Center with lots of background on these cases and also more video attached to each one of them, visiting historic sites associated with the cases. You also can buy a, a book that we have co-published, and it is called Landmark Cases. It is written by veteran Supreme Court reporter Tony Morrow. You can find it on our website and get a link. We'll get it to you before the holidays if you want to give it to a fan in your family. Um, it's at our cost, eight ninety five, and it gives you background and the legacy of all the 12 cases featured in this series. I want to get to a couple more calls, and then we'll kind of wrap this all up. Next up is Pam in Irving, Texas. Hi, Pam. Hi, yes. I just wanted to ask a quick question. Do you think with the um, terrorism and everything that we're facing now in this more modern, I don't know what you want to call it, era, the, you know, the 50 years that it's been, do you think it's now time to maybe update or change the Miranda in some way? Well, descriptively, we know that if fears of terrorism are increasing and people want uh, the government to be tougher on crime, the court may mirror that. Um, and therefore, I th if you're pr predicting, I think it's unlikely that the court would hold that Miranda applies to terrorism suspects interrogated abroad. On the other hand, we're also having a huge debate in this country, as we've been discussing, about police brutality, about overcriminalization, about the treatment of uh, African-American uh, citizens, and that cuts in very much the opposite direction with a, a new sensitivity to the importance of human dignity um, and the fact that all of these encounters are being caught on cameras makes it much harder for the police to engage in the kind of incommunicado, untransparent conduct that they used to. So for all those reasons, I don't think Miranda is going to go away anytime soon. And Wild and Wonderful asks, if there's no consequence for wrongful police contact, then what will dissuade it? The exclusionary rule is necessary. Well, I agree that there certainly should be exclusion of evidence. If there's an involuntary confession, that shouldn't be admitted. But the, the problem is Miranda puts in place a series of just highly technical procedural rules that throws out perfectly good confessions simply because the police have made some kind of a mistake along the way. That, I think, is the real problem. And, and when we talk about human dignity, uh, I think one of the things that probably has changed a little bit in the last 50 years is we now have a much more robust crime victims' rights movement it's interesting that a lot of books have been written telling Miranda's story, but nobody's ever told the story, for example, of Patricia, the young woman who was raped by, by Miranda. And I think there's now uh, more attention to that side of the equation, and I think that's a change for the good. Ed in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, hi. Uh, does the Supreme Court uh, ever take a macro view of the legal system uh, for self-assessment, uh, kind of a, a results focus, both good and bad? Uh, for example, the U.S. incarceration rate, I believe, is the highest in the world, so that might be on the bad side, but on the other side, crime is declining. Do they ever take that into consideration as to how they go about their business? Thanks for the question. Great question. Well, if Professor Stunts and others are correct, they're, at least they're channeling it somehow, whether it's through the gestalt or reading the newspapers or uh, just having a general sense of things. 
But what is striking is how unempirical many of these decisions are. They're written at a high level of abstraction. There, there's not a lot of engagement with uh, law enforcement officials themselves, or either victims or, uh, uh, you know, the accused. And for all those reasons, much of the most interesting work in policing nowadays is being done not in the courts and constitutional decisions, but in regulations of police departments passed by states, uh, Illinois and, and others. Almost every state is grappling with questions of body cameras, of police interrogation post-Ferguson. These are often legislative decisions, and I think that uh, Professor Cassell might even agree that for legislatures to grapple with this and to come up with their own detailed rules is appropriate, and it's good to focus on the facts on the ground. But does it not sound as if these cases are going to become cases that make their way to the Supreme Court if there are different rules? Right. But, mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that Miranda did that I think has probably been its biggest harm to America is it petrified the law of police interrogation. Essentially, the rules today in 2015 are the same as they were in 1966. And just as we've made advances in medicine, we've made advances in auto safety, we could make advances in the way we relate, uh, regulate police interrogation, advances that allow both police to get more confessions and at the same time provide protections for suspects. But Miranda, because it said this is a constitutional right, made those kinds of accommodations, changes, and reform efforts essentially impossible. We're going to wrap this up by uh, listening to Errol Warren's grandson, Jeffrey Earl Warren, uh, who shares with us uh, some personal family history, his grandfather's view of what uh, the Miranda decision and the other policing decisions did for society. Let's watch. I would like the court to, throughout its history to be remembered as the court of the, the people. Uh, no one can uh, say how the opinions of any particular uh, court or any particular era will stand the test of, uh, of time. Uh, all one can do is to do his best to make his opinions conform to the Constitution and laws of the United States and, uh, and then hope that uh, they will be so considered in the future. This is a binder of letters that I have from Papa Warren and some other paraphernalia. He, in 1969, had decided to resign and I had been at the University of California, slightly left of Eldridge Cleaver, and we, I'd written him a very passionate kid-like letter, you know, how we were going to burn everything down and I'd never bring children into this world because uh, it was such a mess. So he writes back to me. I'll just read a couple little sections of it here. The world is imperfect because human nature is imperfect. And then he goes on to say, this is his big point. If all of these laws were obeyed, many of our problems would be solved, or at least they would be in manageable shape for solutions. But we must also take into consideration, and he underlines, human nature. Then he goes on to say, well, we don't want to burn everything down because the result will be, and he underlines, anarchy. And I know you know from your books that governments and institutions are struck down, they are almost always replaced by autocracies that rule repressively. And who suffers most under them? The minorities, of course. Then he finishes, I know, Jeff, that I have not resolved any of your perplexities, but my hope is in that the young people of today, I believe that they can and that they will bring to bear the strength of their idealism to right the wrongs that regretfully have been done. 
or ignored by former generations and particularly by my own. Affectionately, Grandpa. Earl Warren, uh, former Chief Justice in communication to his grandson. So last word from you on what we've discussed tonight. Well, I think, you know, Earl Warren's legacy is a mixed one, and I think, unfortunately, Miranda illustrates that it's an example of politicizing the courts, and once the courts become politicized, once the justices become nothing other than politicians in robes, uh, we have bitter confirmation battles and, and the sort of thing that we've seen playing out over the decades since. What a beautiful clip. Jeffrey Earl Warren, what a great name, and I love the God Bless America. But what that shows is Earl Warren's fundamental concern with translating the values of the Fifth Amendment into the modern age. And a Fifth Amendment concerned about thought crimes, concerned about not exerting psychological pressure on heretics to confess, not by being beaten, but just by having their will overborne by psychological pressure. Warren takes that and makes it modern in the 20th century, and he ends by quoting my hero, uh, Justice Louis Brandeis, about how government is the potent, the omnipotent, potent teacher. And you see that in his letter, too. He was a teacher, and he thought the court has to be a shining emblem for what human dignity and the Fifth Amendment mean. We heard uh, the Chief Justice say that you could do the best job you could in the context of the law, and, uh, and, and the time will affect decisions. So, in fact, you're suggesting it's time for us as a society to rethink some of these based on changes in technology. I think it is. I think Miranda could be updated, could be more effective. And I think uh, it would be an effort, uh, as Jeff has mentioned, there are a lot of people that are thinking about this. And hopefully uh, we can all come together and try to think about things like body cameras, videotaping, interrogation, other things that would update Miranda, not perhaps overrule Miranda. Thanks to both of you for being here tonight on our 11 of 12 cases in the Landmark uh, Cases series. We appreciate your uh, insights on the Miranda case and the overall approach of the Warren Court to policing in America. And as always, thank you so much for being uh, in our audience tonight for your great questions and comments. Our series concludes next week with the Supreme Court's 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade. The case determined that a woman's right to have an abortion is protected under the 14th Amendment right to privacy established by the Connecticut v. Griswold case, but justices ruled the right is not absolute and states can restrict abortion based on the viability of the fetus. Find out more next Monday, live at 9 p.m. Eastern, on C-SPAN, C-SPAN 3 and C-SPAN Radio. You can also learn more about C-SPAN's Landmark Cases series online by going to cspan.org slash landmarkcases. And from the website, you can order C-SPAN's Landmark Cases book featuring background, highlights, and the legal impact of each case. 
Written by veteran Supreme Court journalist Tony Morrow and published by C-SPAN in cooperation with CQ Press. Landmark Cases is available for $8.95 plus shipping.